Well, God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today. Thank you so much for coming. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there. So we bring that service to you wherever you are, anywhere in Israel, anywhere in the world. And we hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and the promises in His Word that He has for your life. Would you open in your Bibles to the book of Genesis? That's where we're going to be today in chapter 15 in the book of Genesis. We'll also put those verses up here for you in the video, as you know, just to make it easier for you to follow along. And today we're continuing in our journey through the book of Genesis, or as you would say, Be'erit, or in Hebrew, Ha-Sefer Bereshit, Ha, the Sefer book Bereshit, in the beginnings. Ha-Sefer Bereshit, which means the book of beginnings, of course, in English. And today I'd like to talk to you about faith even further. We're continuing our study about the life of Abraham, of Inu, Abraham, our father of the faith, the father of the Jewish people, the father of all those who believe in the God of the Jewish Bible and his Mashiach, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Christians and the Jews together. But before we get into chapter 15 today, we need to take up a couple of minutes to recall chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. And this was about Abraham's meeting with this guy named Melchizedek. Now you would say Melchizedek, and you probably say it as Melchizedek in, in English, but actually in Hebrew it's a, it's a combination of words meaning Melech, which is king, and then we say Melchi, which is mean my king, and Sedek, which is righteousness. So Melchi, Sedek, it's my king of righteousness or my righteous king. And Abraham met up with this guy after he came back from a battle in which he and his 318 trained servants defeated the armies, the formidable armies of four foreign kings and rescued his brother Lot, his nephew Lot rather, and all the people that had been kidnapped by these four foreign kings and brought them back. And now on the way back, Abraham meets with Mel Melchizedek, who is the priest of all high God, of most high God. And he's the priest in a place called Salem, Salem, if you will. And that was where Jerusalem would be in the future. And really it was Jerusalem as it was just getting started, I guess you would say. So uh, Jerusalem, you would, you would hear that in there. But Yerushalayim, of course, is a city of the great king. That's Jerusalem. How we say Jerusalem in Hebrew? Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim. And in chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, Abraham meets Melchizedek, the king slash priest of Most High God. And he was so impressed with Melchizedek that Abraham gave a tenth of all that he had to Melchizedek as a blessing. Now it's the first time in chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, that we've heard that, that phrase, God Most High. Bivrit, uh, or in Hebrew, whenever I say Bivrit, Bivrit, I'm saying in Hebrew. So Bivrit, or in Hebrew, that's El Elyon, El Elyon. So El Elyon is God Most High. And you're going to find out that later, Abraham begins calling God, God Most High. That's how impressed he was with Melchizedek. But as we read more throughout the Bible in the book of Psalms and other places, uh, in the New Testament, 
you'll find out more about Melchizedek, that he's a real mystery. No one really knew where he came from, didn't have any father or mother, and he was just a priest and a king. And remember the Levitical priest in the law of God in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, later they were not allowed to be both king and priest. Only two people have, hold that, have held that title. One was Melchizedek, and the other was Jesus the Messiah. And that's what the verse in Psalms had said, where the Lord said about his Mashiach, about his Messiah when he was to come. He says, you are a king forever, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, you had no beginning, you had no end. You're a king and a priest. You could only be a priest under the Levitical order given by uh, God to Moshe Hanavir, Moses the, the prophet, on Mount Sinai. So anyway, during this time, Abraham meets with Melchizedek and Melchizedek blesses him. And it's only appropriate that Melchizedek would bless Abraham of Enor, Abraham our father. Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. It's accepted that the greater is the one who always blesses the one who is lesser. So here's this priest of God Most High, Melchizedek, blessing Abraham. That shows how great Melchizedek was, the priest of God Most High. What an influence he would have on the rest of scriptures, as we'll see later. But then Abraham passes on after he gives him the tenth of all that he possesses. And he was really blessed. And Abraham was a generous person. Yes, he was wealthy, but he was generous. He gave a tenth of everything he had. You could, use a you could lose a tenth in the stock market today and you'd be just real despairing and, and despondent and real sad that you lost a tenth. But I'll tell you what, if you give that possession, if you give that money to God, you're assuring that God's kingdom can be prospered here on this earth and that people who need that will be uh, funded so that they could be doing the work of God. So then you're a partner with them in the work of God. So that's an important concept. It doesn't go away. God says he blesses a generous person. And that's in the book of Proverbs in the Tanakh. Now, remember I told you last week that we would quickly cover that. And so we did. We talked about Melchizedek. And actually that psalm says about Melchizedek, it says in Psalm 110, I believe it is, yeah, 110 verse 4, it says in the Tanakh, in the book of Psalms, that the Messiah will live forever. Did you know that? Look at that verse, Psalm 110 verse 4. It says the Lord has sworn and will not relent. In other words, He won't change His mind. He's saying about the Mashiach, the Messiah, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you look at what Jewish rabbis are saying about the Messiah today, they say, no, he's just going to be a normal man. He'll bring peace. He'll be a very great man. But he's just a normal man. He'll be born. He'll live for a while. And then he'll die just like other normal men do. But what do you do with Psalms 110 verse 4? where it says, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you, speaking of the Messiah, are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, do you see where it says forever? The Messiah is going to live forever. It says forever, right? 
How can someone be a priest forever if he doesn't live forever? Ask that question to the others. And only one without sin can live forever. The, soul, the Tanakh says that the soul that sins will die. So who is this person who's living forever? And how can he live forever? Since the Bible also says in Isaiah, in Isaiah and in Psalm that all have sinned, really, that God found none righteous, no, not one. Well, you see, it had to be a blemish-free sacrifice to take away the sins of mankind. And if you will, that is the Lamb of God. So just like the Lamb in Pesach, okay, or Passover, when God said he saw, when he sees the blood of the blemish-free lamb on the, on the, on the uh, doorpost of the house, he will pass over that house in judgment. And in the same way, the Messiah was going to be the blemish-free sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Sin came into the world through man to permanently atone for sin and to take it away. It had to be atoned for in man. But it had to be a blemish-free man. In other words, someone without sin. And God said twice in the book of Psalms, once in the book of Isaiah, that He looked all over the world to find if there was any righteous, any that continually sought God who only wanted to do good. And in all three of those verses, He said, sadly, He found none, no, not one. But then in Isaiah 59, verse 16, which was one of those areas, he said in Isaiah 59, 16, that the Lord himself went forward and he gained the victory himself with his own arm, with his own strength. It's talking about salvation for mankind. He himself became the Messiah. God, the Lord, became a man and became the Messiah. You say, well, God can't do that. Oh, so you're saying God has some things that the all-powerful God can't do? Is that what you're saying? Well, of course He can. And in Genesis chapter 18, we'll see later that He became a man and was talking to Abraham Himself when He came down to earth and was going to see how wicked Sodom and Gomorrah was. And He came with two other angels. And Abraham said He saw three men. Now, if your rabbi is teaching you different and saying that God can't become a man, you need to read your Bible and stop listening to people. Because they're supposed to be the experts in the Bible. And if they've been kidding themselves too long and listening to other rabbis and other teachers, whether they're Christian or Jewish, you need to get out of there and see what the Word of God says for itself. You can understand the Word. If you've been coming to these services here online for any length of time as we go through them, you know now. You know by now that you can understand the Word of God. God made it to where you can. He wants you to know His Word. He didn't hide it secretly with just a few people. And they twist it around and say whatever they want it to say. God made His Word to where you can understand it. Now, I have many friends who are good-hearted good rabbis who faithfully try to teach the Word. And honestly, they are searching for the Lord. Some of them have found Him. Some of them have found the Messiah and now believe on Him. But others are still searching. But then there's other people that really have gotten so far away from the Word of God that instead they just listen to what other rabbis say. And they want to play that game. They want to be part of it and make their own interpretation. 
and eventually you look up at what some of these people are saying and it turns out that they're saying something that's completely opposite of what the Bible says or is different or doesn't agree with what the verses in Scripture and the Bible says. You search it out for yourself. You are responsible for searching it out for yourself. God said in Jeremiah the prophet, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. Okay, so now we're going to leave this person Melchizedek and get on with our chapter today in verse in chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. And it says in Genesis 15, beginning at verse 1, After these things the word of God came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now let's talk about that first verse. And you say, well, Pastor Stephen, you didn't get too far there. Just one verse. Oh, we're going to speed up. In fact, if you think that's fast, if you think I'm talking fast now, I had two cups of coffee today. You better fasten your seatbelt there. But here in this first verse, it says that God speaks to Abraham's fears and doubts and gives him a promise. It said the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now we should talk about that. You know, even today, the Word of God comes to people in many different ways. Sometimes it comes as a personal appearance of God, and God can appear to people, just like He did in the Bible. He still does that today. And I'm saying that He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's holy. And He's perfect, so perfection can't change. If it's perfect and it changes, then it's something less than perfect. But God has no reason to change. He is perfect. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in the Bible, in the New Testament as well, it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if you're going around trying to teach a different kind of Jesus than what the Bible talks about, you're not teaching the right Word of God. You need to rightly divide the Word of God and be in agreement with what the Scripture. You don't have special revelation that Scripture does not have. You do not have the authority from God to say something that contradicts Scripture and that goes against Scripture and thinking that your version is somehow higher or better than the written Word of God. It is not. And by the way, if you're Jewish and you believe that the oral tradition now replaces the written Word of God, remember that half of the Talmud, the Mishnah Torah, the writers of that, which is considered to be more sacred than all of the rest of the commentary, they even say that the written Word of God is the priority, is the most important part. So you need to get back to the Word. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, get back to the Word. If you haven't been in the Word and you don't know what the Word is about, you need to get in the Word. It's all about the Word of God. In it is an instruction manual for life, and you will find the peace and the joy you're looking for. But God uses different ways to speak to people. Sometimes He appears as a person. Sometimes He, by an audible voice or visions or even dreams of the night. Sometimes people have been visited by angels. Sometimes it comes down to the working of the Holy Spirit upon a person's mind. The Spirit of God, as He makes a passage of Scripture alive to the heart, 
or by God using the ministry of a prophet or a preacher or a Bible teacher to make an impact on your heart to where it's changing your life, to where God reveals something to you. But the bottom line, what I'm, what I'm trying to say to you is that God wants to reach you. He wants to call you. He wants to comfort you and He wants to use you in mighty ways. You were created for a purpose. You have a reason in life. You have a high and noble purpose in life. And when you seek God with all your heart, you will find Him. Then the next thing he says is he says to Abram in verse 1, Don't be afraid. I'm your shield and your exceedingly great reward. There's a reason why God said this to Abram. Abram had just defeated these much larger armies, remember, with the federation of the four kings that had come against the kings of the plain and, and took Lot and all these other people captive and took all these possessions of these people and, and just left Sodom and Gomorrah and the whole area of the plain just desolate and destroyed. And yet they had a reputation for destroying cities everywhere they went, big cities. And here Abram with only 318 people comes and God gives him the victory. Now Abram might be thinking now that he's come back, he said, well, these are powerful kings. They've been here before. They know how to get here. It's not going to take them long. They're going to regroup and they're going to come after me and try to pay me back. They're going to try to destroy me and all of our land. So Abram is probably thinking about that. So when God comes to him first in chapter 15, he says, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. I'm your protector. That's what he was saying. And then he says, I'm your great reward. I am your great reward. Remember that Abram had just turned down a very great reward from the king of Sodom. Sodom's city was destroyed and the king of Sodom was very grateful that Abram brought back the people and brought back the wealth. And he offered all the wealth to Abram. And Abram said, no, because then someone would be able to say that they made Abram rich. But God alone is the one who's blessed me. And to God alone belongs the glory. That's what he told this king. But then as he walked out of there, God said, don't be afraid. I'm your shield and I'm your exceeding great reward. Yes, I know you turned it down to protect my glory, but Abram, when I'm with you, you have no need for anything. I will prosper you. I'll prosper you not only in the physical way, I'll prosper you in the spiritual way, the far more important way, because heavenly treasures are far more important than earthly treasures. And money comes and goes. But when God is with you, you don't have to worry about anything in life, ever. I'm not saying you're going to drive around in Mercedes and have luxury and, and be a multi-millionaire or anything. I'm not saying that at all. Sometimes that actually makes you sad and destroys your life. Those riches can. But when God is your treasure, then you have everything you need in life and you have a smile on the face. Remember that. You have what you're looking for, peace. So Abram was afraid. God comes to him and says, don't be afraid. God's going to take care of you wherever you go. And now in verse 2 and 3, we finally get on with it. Move this show on down the road. Abram said in verse 2, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Verse 3, then Abram said, look, 
You've given me no offspring, Lord. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And he was talking about his servant, Eleazar, his administrator of all that he had. He didn't have any children that were born to him and his wife Sarai. Now here, you notice that Abram is just being honest. He's a straightforward guy. He's not mad at God. He's just saying what's on his heart. He's not trying to hide it. He's not trying to dance around with fancy words. He just honestly expresses his heart to God. And he expresses his doubts. Yes, Lord, I know you're my reward. Yes, Lord, I know you're my shield and my protector. But God, I've got all this wealth. I've got all of these things and there's no one from me. There's no child that can grow and be the heir to all I own. There's no son that can take over for me. And I'm getting older now, Lord. What will you give me then, Lord? So you can tell he's kind of handing around. Well, God, I need a son to be an heir. Who's going to take over all of this thing with all these hundreds of people? Sarai is getting older with me. She can't do it. Who's going to do all of this and keep my family going? And you told me my descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the heaven. You told me, Lord, that my descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But they got to start somewhere, all those descendants. And Lord, I don't even have the starting point. I don't even have a single person that is my child. I don't have a single son. So Lord, what will you give me? And certainly Abram appreciated the promises of God, but at the same time, there was a sense that it just didn't have the same impact on his life when he heard them as if when he could actually see that son there, you see. And it was Abram that said, what good is it? He was saying, what good is it that you're my shield and my reward? The only thing I've really ever wanted, Lord, anything with any passion in my life, the only thing I've wanted with passion really is a son. Where are the descendants that you promised me? How can I have them unless you give me a son? That's what Abram was saying. It's, it's like Abram was saying, Lord, you've given me all kinds of stuff and now promises to give me more and to protect me. But what good is it? If I get older and I pass away and there's no one to take it all over, I want a son. I want the son you promised me, Lord. And now Eliezer of Damascus was Abram's chief assistant, a right-hand man. He was a good man, but not Abram's son. Abram's bold honesty before the Lord's a wonderful example. Instead of holding it all in in frustration, he brought it before God and just discussed it honestly with God. To some degree, this question showed that Abram kind of doubted God a little bit. But remember, it wasn't a doubt that denied God's promise or ability to give that promise and fulfill it to him. Rather, it was a doubt that desired God's promise to happen more quickly, you see. That was the thing, as Abram wanted this answer pretty quickly. And it's kind of the way we are, isn't it? We, we, we want it and we want it now. Well, Abraham was human. He was the same way. But he had waited a long time. Abram wanted to believe, and he looked to God to stretch his faith. What he was doing was crying out to God, God, help me out here. I'm having problems just understanding this all. Help me out, Lord. 
So in verse 4, then we read on, it says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one, speaking of Eleazar from Damascus, this one will not be, shall not be your heir, but one will come from your own body and be your heir. Verse 5, Then he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven now and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now verses 4 and 5, let's discuss it. Here God speaks about Abram's doubts, and he gives him a promise again. This one shall not be your heir. Okay, he's halfway there. Abram said, the only heir I've got is Eliezer of Damascus. And God said, no, he's not going to be your heir, but one will come from your own body. And God reminded Abram of the promise originally recorded in Genesis 12:2 and in Genesis 13, verses 15 through 16. God did this because He knows how much we need to be reminded. Yes, we. We who believe on God, we who are God's people, we who are children of God, we still need to be reminded from time to time. There's times when we get a little weary. God says one will come from your own body, will be your heir. Now God often states a promise with such certainty that we just feel in our heart that it's going to happen right away. We start getting ready. But the fulfillment for Abram was still 15 years away before Isaac, or Isaac, his son, would be born. We see Abram getting older and how it's easy to think of things confined only to human limitations. He's probably thinking like, I'm getting older. I'm, I, I might could have a child nowadays, but is, I, I don't know if I could have one uh, two or three, four or five years down the road. And my wife Sarai, I don't know that she can. But God didn't give it to them while they were in the human limitations of having children. He gave them the child when they were far, far beyond the limit that people would age to and still be able to have children. To show that this wasn't an accident, it wasn't a freak thing of nature that Isaac would be born of them as they were late in their childbearing age. No, this was something that there was no question. No one could have a son at 99 years of age for the father and 90 years of age for the mother. Abram's getting older and how easy it is to think of our own human limitations. But God is far beyond those limitations, and He is all-powerful. He is God Most High. Abram might have been thinking, I'm getting too old now, and I won't be able to have a child later. God, you need to do this now before I get older. God says, you don't worry about it. From your own body, God explained exactly what He meant in His promise to Abram. He meant that it wasn't going to be a spiritual descendant or some servant who was working for Him who would inherit the promise, someone such as Eleazar, His administrative assistant, but it would be a real person, a flesh and blood descendant. You see, even today we sometimes misunderstand God's promises. And that's the way Abram was. But later we're going to see that he takes Haggai, his servant, and tries to have a child through them. And that was Ishmael. That turned into all kinds of problems. And then even God said, that's not the one I've chosen. That's not the descendant I've chosen to bless and, and bless the rest of the world through. I, that's not the one that I was thinking of. But Abram took things into his own hands with his wife Sarai and tried to do it on their own. Again, 
thinking of only man's way of doing things. But God has ways that are far beyond our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts as the heavens are above the earth. His ways are higher than our ways as the heavens are above the earth. In other words, you can't even imagine them. Why don't you just tell God what you need and stop trying to tell God how you need Him to answer you? Sometimes you're just selling yourself short. You might be getting second best. God wants to do something far greater in your life. So God tells Abram now, look toward the heaven. Count the stars if you're able to. You can detect a little bit of challenge there. Count the stars if you're able to. God not only told Abram the promise again, but he confirmed it with an illustration in the stars in the sky to show how vast the number of Abram's descendants would be. And one of those descendants, the greatest of his descendants, would be the Mashiach, the Messiah. As it says in Revelation 22, verse 16, the bright and the morning star. And he believed in the Lord, it said in verse 6. He believed in the Lord and that was accounted to him for righteousness. We're going to talk about this verse. We're going to talk about this verse. You who trust in works, you who trust in memorizing all Sheshmot, Shaloshes, Re Mitzvot, all 613 of the commands that you feel are in the Torah. Some say to do things, some say don't do these other things. And, and you believe that if you'll do those all the time, you'll be righteous. But yet God is self in his Tanakh. In your Bible, which you have sitting in your room, in your house, in your apartment, you have that Tanakh sitting there and you open it up and it says, God says there are none righteous, no, not one. So what are you doing on the street corners of Tel Aviv and Yerushalayim and Netanyah? Okay, what are you doing on the street corners wrapping the flint and everything and doing your prayers and saying to one another, oh, tzaddik, tzaddik, righteous, righteous. No, God's word says that you aren't righteous. I admire you for trying. And we all have our own ways of trying. But I know what you're saying. I'm also Jewish. But here's the thing. There's none righteous. No, not one. And yet God right here in Genesis 15 verse 6. Batorah. Basefer. Bereshit. In the book of Genesis, in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, right here in Genesis 15, verse 6, it says what God really, really, really wants of you. Abraham believed God, and that was accounted to him for righteousness. Hmm. Well, wait a minute. What about the 613 mitzvot or commandments? Abraham believed God, and that was counted to him for righteousness. Why are you trying to keep all of those commandments for him? By the way, you fail all the time. Let's be honest with each other. You know and I know. God knows your heart. He knows your mind. He knows your thoughts. He sees the things that no one else sees. You're not free of sin. And until your sins are forgiven with the atonement that God has provided in his Mashiach, until your sins are forgiven under the blood of the blemish-free Lamb of God, those sins are still a part of your life. And they will destroy you, my brother and sister. Don't let those destroy you. Come into His kingdom through the way that He is designed. He shows right here what He wants you to do to be righteous. And Abram believed the Lord, and that was accounted to him for righteousness.
When Abram put his trust in God, specifically in God's promise to him, the descendants leading to the Mashiach, God credited this belief about his descendants leading to the Mashiach to Abram's account as righteousness. He credited it. It's like you owed this big, big bill to this company and you couldn't pay this bill. And then someone came in and just because they cared for you, they decided to pay everything for you. It's not a trick. It's not funny, funny bookkeeping or anything. It's not dishonest. Someone who loved you came in and paid the bill for you. That's the way it is with the Messiah. And that's why he's the most important man in the Bible that he would come and take away the sins of the world to all who would believe on him. And like I said, that person is said in Psalm 110 that he would be an, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that he would be a priest forever. You can't be a priest forever unless you live forever. And no man lives forever because of their sin. But here's one without sin. God himself became a man. And so this man that he became will live forever because he had no sins of his own. Even though he took our sins upon himself, he had no sins of his own. And so you see the plan of God for salvation. Is it all coming together? Is it all starting to like make sense to you? Oh, we believe in the, in the Jewish God. We believe in the Jewish Messiah. And as Rambam said, with all my heart, I will eagerly await for him. We have waited for him and he has come. And now it's to believe on him. And that will be counted as righteousness on your account before God. None of us can be good enough to accomplish perfect righteousness. And yet God's standard is perfection. He is perfectly righteous, and in His kingdom, heaven, there is no sin. That's why Satan and his fallen angels had to be kicked out. You will not be allowed in heaven with sin. Your sin must be atoned for, and that happens through the Lamb of God, Yeshua HaMashiach, who came to give His life for the sins of the world. And believing on Him gives you salvation. And like the prophet Joel said, Batanach in the Tanakh, and it will come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God wants you to be saved. Believe on Him and be saved. Now this verse here in verse 6 is the first time in the whole Bible that the word believe is used. Do you know that? It's also the first time in the whole Bible that the word righteousness is used. The first time in the Bible the word believe is used. The first time in the Bible the word righteousness is used. And guess what? They're used together. They're used together. And this is the gospel, if you will, in the Torah, in the book of Genesis, in the first five books of the Bible. This is the gospel. And this is the verse that was quoted even four times by Berta Chadashah in the New Testament. It's quoted four times. Abraham believed God. And God accounted that to him as righteousness. You say, well, I believe in God. Well, did you know that even the demons believe in God? But believing in God is different than believing God. Believing God is believing what He said about His Messiah, 
about His Word, believing His promises, believing that what He said and the testimony that He gave regarding His Son, Jesus the Messiah. Are you believing God? Because even the demons believe in God. They know that God exists. But you have to both believe that God exists and you have to believe God. And verse 7 then says, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, he's telling Abram, to give you this land to inherit it. Remember, Abram had just expressed some doubt. And now God says, I brought you out of the land of the Chaldeans to this land to inherit it. And Abram was saying, and look at what Abram says in the very next verse. Lord, how will I know that I will inherit it? Well, Abram, actually God just told you. He said, the whole reason I called you from Ur of the Chaldeans to come to this land is so that you, Abram, would inherit it. Well, God, how, the, how will I know that I will inherit it? Well, let's think back about that, Abram. God protected you along the way from your journey from Ur of the Chaldeans to the land of Canaan. He protected you when you went down to Egypt when you shouldn't have because you were trusting in man to get you through the famine instead of God. He's taken care of you all of this time. And basically, Abram, God is saying, I've showed you how I've been there with you. I've showed you that I was caring for you. And then Abram was listening to this. And then verse 9, so God said to him, he said, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Here's what's happening. God's putting together a sacrifice for that night that's going to happen. In verse 10, he says, Then Abram, then he brought them all to God, cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the each other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And verse 11 then says, And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram, Abram drove them away. Now, Abram is preparing a sacrifice. He's preparing for a contract or a covenant with God. Three-year-old heifer, three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. This looks more like a shopping list than something that the Lord would ask for. What's going on here? But Abram knew exactly what was going on here. God had told him to cut them in two and place each piece opposite the other. Abram knew exactly what to do with these animals. He understood because it was a custom in his day that how two people would make a contract for each other and how they would prepare this ceremony, this ritual, and get it ready for signing the contract, if you will. In those days, contracts were made by sacrificial cutting of animals. And they would split the carcass of the animals and lie them on the ground. Then both parties to the covenant or the contract would walk through in the middle of these two animal parts on each side, repeating the terms of the government, of the covenant. And that's how they would make a contract and bind the contract. And if you will, that's how they would sign the contract with this oath of repeating the terms of the covenant as they walked through these animals that were cut in half and set off to the side. And if you think about it, Here's half of this animal. Here's the other half over here. When you are walking down the middle and repeating the terms of the covenant and the person you're doing the contract with also walks down the middle and repeats it, that's basically saying 
you and I are perfectly in line on this. We're perfectly in agreement with this. We are closer to each other now than that animal half over here was to that animal half over here before they were cut. That was the way a contract was done. It had to do with cutting the animals in half and walking down the middle. Now the Lord made a covenant in Genesis 15 verse 18 and it's interesting that the word made the covenant is actually also the word for cut. That the Lord cut a covenant. That the Lord made a covenant. It's used many times in the Bible to represent the word made, but it is also used many times in the Bible to represent the word cut. And so this type of a contract that was made was a contract that involved cutting and there was shedding of blood because that showed how serious the contract was. Jeremiah 34 verses 18 through 20 actually makes reference to this same kind of practice of a covenant made by cutting animals and repeating the oath of the covenant as one walks through those animal parts. The symbolism was plain. Like I said, it's a serious covenant and this shows that it was sealed with blood. Then Abram had reason to expect that God would come down and walk through the animal parts with him because he knew that this was a contract. This is the way the custom was at that time. This is how two people did a contract with each other. So when God told him to get these animals and to cut them and put them on the ground like that and everything, he was preparing for a contract. Abram knew exactly what to do and he expected God to come down and walk through the animal parts with him. Because after all, God had previously appeared to him in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. So when Abram had his doubts and wanted assurance from the, uh, from the Lord, God then was saying to him, okay, let's settle this once and for all. Let's sign a contract. And when the vultures came down, it said on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. In other words, Abram was waiting for the Lord to appear and to walk through the carcasses with him. In other words, to sign the covenant. But God didn't come right away. He had to wait for the Lord. And sometimes I think we also have to wait for the Lord, right? But His timing is not our timing. Sometimes we want Him to do things right now, or we thought He was going to do things right now. But He says, no, wait a while. When you pray a prayer, you can get three answers. One of the answers is, yes, I'll do that. The other answer is, no, that would be bad for you. I've got something better planned. But the third answer is, I'll do it, but you have to wait because the timing's not right. Now, verse 12, we continue on. It says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then God said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them for 400 years. Verse 14, And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Then he says to Abram, Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at an old age, a good old age. But in the fourth generation, those descendants will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. Amorites were people who dwelt in the land of Canaan at that time. And that shows that even God giving a chance and another chance and being merciful and giving more time for the Amorites to repent of their sins before He judged them. He's waiting for them to repent. 
He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and know him, you see. But the Amorites weren't turning. And God was saying, well, they're not ready yet. I want to give them a little bit longer. But your descendants will return here. In the fourth generation, they'll return here. In the meantime, the sin of the Amorites is still adding to their own account, which is a bad account. It's an account of plenty of sins. So now when you see the sun going down, it said, at the end of the day, God hadn't come to walk through the animal parts with Abram. Instead, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Abram. Apparently, the least part of what followed came to Abram in a dream. Or even while he was in a dream state, kind of groggy, maybe half asleep. You know how that is when you hadn't had your coffee yet and you're waking up. You don't know if you're really awake or not. But then God says, no, your descendants are going to be strangers in a foreign land that's not theirs and will serve them. Abram wanted proof from God that these descendants would be coming. And God would come and sign the covenant with him. And that would be his proof that he had a contract, if you will, with God. He was waiting for God to show up. But God is revealing to him what's going to happen with his descendants. He tells him all the good things are going to happen, but he also tells him the other things that are going to happen too. God is always honest with you. He doesn't try to hide you or shield you from the truth. What his word says, whether it looks harsh or whether it looks peaceful, you must remember all of his word is the truth. Abram needed to know that while he would have both land and descendants, not everything would go well with those descendants in the future. There would be times of testing and preparation for Abram's descendants, but in the end, it would all turn out good. God told Abram that his descendants would be afflicted for 400 years and told him of the slavery that they would endure. But then after that, they would come back. And then in verse 17, as we go to wrap up now, it says, When it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So there, the covenant is made. When the sun went down, it was all dark. Abram was either asleep or perhaps not fully awake, but he saw God do an amazing thing. God passed through the animal parts by himself. Abram was only watching from the sidelines. A smoking oven, it said, and a burning torch passed between the pieces of the animals that had been cut and halved. In the walking through the sacrificed animals in the covenant ceremony, God represented himself by these two emblems, a smoking oven and a burning torch. Does that strike any Remembrance in your mind? Does that ring any bells in your memory? What have you heard before? Oh, yeah, the smoking, that was the pillar of cloud representing the presence of God in Exodus 13, verse 21 through 22. The pillar of God when he was leading the Hebrews or Israel out of the land of Misraim or the land of Egypt. 
the smoke on Mount Sinai when the Lord descended and the cloud of God's Shekinah glory in 1 Kings chapter 8 when the temple was dedicated and other times the smoke, the pillar of cloud representing the presence of God. Smoking oven. Then the burning torch. Well, what does that mean? Doesn't that remind you of the pillar of fire? Also representing the presence of God in the camp of Israel as he led them out of the land of Mizraim, the land of Egypt. Remember, it was smoke in the day and a pillar of fire by night. The burning bush displaying the presence of God before Moses, the fire. And the fire from heaven that sometimes went down and consumed sacrifices that God was well pleased with. So now God appears as a smoking oven and the, and the torch fire that passed through these parts. But did you notice something else a little different from that? God did this by himself. Abram was watching from the sidelines like we said. He wasn't a part of it. What am I saying? I'm saying this is a unilateral covenant. It only depended on God. Abram didn't have to do anything. God was being merciful. He was being good. He was being gracious. He was telling Abram, you don't have to do anything. Just believe me. And then the rest is up to me. That's all he's asking today, folks. Believe him. And the rest is up to him. You are not righteous because what you have or have not done. You are not a sinner because of what you have or have not done after you believe on the Messiah. You are righteous before God because when God looks at you and you believe on his Mashiach, the Son of God, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Lord. When you believe on him, God sees the perfect righteousness of his Son. In other words, your sins are covered by the blood. And just like when God passed over that house in the Pesach, in the first Pesach, when he said, when I see the blood, I will pass over that house in judgment. I won't go in and judge them for their unrighteousness and sin, even though they're Yehudim or Jewish people. I will not go in and judge that house when I see the blood. He didn't say, I'll pass over that house when I see that they're Jewish people in that house. He did not say that. He said, when I see the blood on the doorpost of the house, the blood from the blemish-free, the spotless lamb put on the doorpost of the house, then I will pass over that house with judgment. And he won't judge that house. And that's what the book of Vaikra, the book of Leviticus says also in the Torah. It says, the blood is given you for atonement of your sins on the altar. God uses the blood as the atonement. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So it's necessary for the Messiah to come, shed his own blood, the blood of a blemish-free, sinless sacrifice, the true Lamb of God. The story that Pesach was foretelling. Now you get it. It was a story that Pesach was foretelling. God signed this covenant unilaterally. Abram never signed it. He only watched while God signed it for both of them. So certainly the covenant that God made with Abram was based on who God is, not on whom Abram is or what Abram would do. This covenant could not fail because God cannot fail.
It's like the new covenant that God makes with all who believe on His Son, Mashiach Yeshua, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Our righteousness is no longer a requirement, you see. This was signed by God alone. God alone is the righteous one, and unilaterally He has made and is enforcing this contract. His righteousness is enough for Him and for those that believe on His Messiah, Yeshua. God signed this covenant. And then he says, I've given you this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. And by quoting these specific lands in those verses, he's telling Abram, this is not just a spiritual promise. This is real and it involves real land. Israel will inherit real land. God's promises are real and he means them. You can take the Bible literally. In fact, most mistakes that scholars have made through the years were because they did not interpret the Bible literally. They thought that it couldn't happen because Israel doesn't exist anymore, so it must mean something else. It must mean that the church has taken the place of Israel. No, the church did not take the place of Israel. In 1948, as you fast forwarded from the 1800s, Israel came back into the land, and now Israel was there again. God means what He says, and He says what He means. You can take His Word, and you can take His Word literally. There is nothing, no circumstance. There is nothing, no human limitation. There is nothing, nothing that can come against Him that can prevent the Word of God from happening exactly as He said it would. Trust in Him. So in this chapter, we see how God is stretching Abram's faith even further. At first, he called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he cared for him and protected him along the way. Then God kept Abram out of trouble when he went down to Egypt during the famine. Then God blessed Abram and protected him from choosing the land around Sodom that Lot was going to choose because God knew that that land would later be destroyed. Then God gave Abram a great victory over these four mighty kings and their armies when he rescued Lot. God was with him, guiding him, protecting him, keeping him, watching over him all this time. And now God is saying, you haven't seen anything yet. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a miracle baby to be born to you even in your old age. Yeah, God is stretching Abram's faith even further stretching that faith even further than before. And that's what God does with His children. He stretches their faith even further so that they will learn to depend on their Heavenly Father for everything. So that they'll learn to trust Him more and more through bigger and bigger trials that others may see and that others may know that God is real and that He loves His children so that they will also want to become a child of God. Why don't you give your life to God today if you don't know Him? Right now. If you call out to Him, He'll hear that cry. He'll answer you and He'll rescue you from the darkness. And He'll shine His light on your heart. And you'll be given newness of life. He's going to change you into a new person. Throw all those past failures away and you'll be made completely new given a new start, and He'll give you everlasting life in heaven. That's guaranteed by God Himself. We want to give you an opportunity to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Lord and to receive God's peace in your life. 
You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment. Just pray something like this. You can even repeat after me if you'd like. Just say, God, I do want to know you and have real peace in life. I believe on your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Lord, please forgive all my sins. I give my life to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, God heard you. And He's already started working in your life. A little seed's been planted deep down in your heart. And over time, you'll begin to see the wonderful changes that God's making in your heart, in your life. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about Him and His Word. Talk to Him every day in prayer. He's going to do beautiful things in your life.